Welcome to Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot. Today I interview philosopher Tim Schroeder. It's maybe the most modest metaethical theory that you can really have. It's the one that claims the least for morality. But at the same time, I feel like it claims enough to support the relationship we actually have to right and wrong. And I feel like that should be enough. If you like the show and want it to continue, consider writing a kind review on iTunes or sending the link to a friend. And now, my interview with Tim Schroeder. Dr. Tim Schroeder is an associate professor of philosophy at Ohio State University and the author of Three Faces of Desire, which has been widely acclaimed and is probably the reason he was invited to write the article on desire for the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy as well. Tim, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Luke. Tim, most of us probably think desire is pretty simple. Desire is when we want something. We all know what that's like. But when you want to give a more precise account of desire, it gets pretty complicated pretty quick, especially when you start looking at the neuroscience. What are some of the recent findings in neuroscience that seem to tell us something about the nature of desire? There are a couple of things that you really want to know about from a neuroscientific perspective, if you're interested in desire. Desire obviously has something to do with acting, with taking actions. If you want something, you go and get it. So we'd like to know something about the neuroscience of action. How is it that actions are produced enough normally? What are abnormal pathways for movement without really calling it action, things like kicks? And what are the different stages? Of course, nothing in the brain comes with a nice label on it. So we don't know which of those stages should be called desire or belief or intention. But we'd like to at least know the pathway as a starting point. And then one of the other things we'd like to know about, if we're interested in desire, is pleasure and displeasure, good and bad feelings. Because when you want something, you're open to feeling good or feeling bad as a result. If you get what you want, you normally feel good. You feel excited in anticipation of getting what you want. And you feel bad when you're denied what you want or bad when it looks like you're never going to get the thing you want so much. So we'd like to know where pleasure and displeasure are found in the brain. Right. And we'd like to know what the relationship of that is to the whole pathway of action. And we found out a lot about that stuff recently. In fact, the main thing that we found out is that it all comes back to a neural structure sometimes called the reward system or mesolimbic dopamine, the structure that releases dopamine that's getting to be a famous brain chemical. And release of dopamine seems to cause pleasure downstream. There are different candidates for where in the brain it causes it. And also to be a key releaser of voluntary action. So there seems to be a reward system in the brain, and that's what causes a lot of our actions? That's right. So the idea is something like this. When you think about what could happen to you, you might have all kinds of ideas that really don't mean anything to you. I look, I see the cat, the cat might walk forwards, it might walk backwards, that doesn't really mean anything to me. But maybe I see that the cat might come to get petted. Well, I like to pet the cat. Petting the cat gives me pleasure. What happens in me when I see that the cat might come toward me is that that excites a little bit of extra dopamine release in my brain coincidentally with, that is, at the same time as the idea of getting the cat to come to me. And that release of dopamine causes two things. It makes me feel a little bit excited at the idea of the cat coming towards me, and it increases the likelihood that I'll take the action that'll get the cat to come to me. So I call it, the cat comes over, that increases dopamine release, that keeps me motivated to start petting the cat, and keeps me excited and feeling good about petting the cat. That seems to be the way that it works in us. Well, can you give us some sense of how far along we are in the neuroscience? Because my understanding is, you know, we all see different studies of when we think about this or we act this way, then certain parts of the brain are more active than others. But I imagine we're not at the point yet where we can actually trace the communication through billions of neurons and figure out what's going on, like understanding every point in a computer program or something like that. So how far along are we, really? We're really far along at certain levels, not as far along at other levels and at other parts of the process. So one of the things that we're really far along in is tracing the neuron-by-neuron neuron pathway between the idea of a cat coming over to you and that causing a dopamine release. 
we can trace that out pretty much connection to connection, cell to cell. We don't know exactly where it starts because where exactly the idea of the cat coming to you, where that idea is found or where that idea might be distributed across some region of the brain, we're not sure, but we're pretty sure what regions it could involve. Things like temporal association cortex, where it seems like our general concepts of the world are kept. That seems like a good candidate for where my idea of getting cat moving might be. Those project forward to a region of orbital frontal cortex that in turn projects down to a region of the basal ganglia. And that in turn projects to the substantia nigra pars compacta and the ventral tegmental area. Those are two names for regions of the brain that release dopamine. And when they get a differential activation, an activation that seems to correspond, according to some really clear, beautiful, low-level animal experiments, seems to correspond to the difference between how good you thought the world was a second ago and how good the world you think is, how good you think the world is now. I use good in quotes. How desirable or how wanted might be a more accurate way of putting it mm-hmm. in the way I think about things. Then if the world seems now better than it seemed like it was going to be a second ago, that increases dopamine. And we know that that causes downstream pleasure. We know that that is directly involved in releasing actions. So that part of it we know really well. On the other hand, when you're doing fMRI and you're looking at parts of the brain that light up and you're like, I wonder what parts of the brain are involved in pleasure or displeasure. Here are a bunch of areas that differentially light up when people are pleased versus not or displeased versus not or in pain versus not in pain. Those studies are a lot harder to interpret because we know that when you feel pain, for instance, you both nociceptive and you tense up and you feel displeasure. So nociception is something like the feeling of that like tingly feeling in your skin where you're hurt. Displeasure is the unpleasantness of that feeling. Hmm. The tensing up is just a natural thing that happens. You have a defensive reaction. You focus your attention on the part of your body that's injured. So we know that all of those mental things happen simultaneously. Which one of those corresponds to the brain area that we're seeing activated? That's a lot harder to say. So some parts of the brain science are harder to interpret. Other parts are really solid. And the connection-to-connection pathways that have been investigated at the neurophysiological level, those are pretty solid. Uh, we have you know, relatively straightforward cellular techniques for seeing what neurons are connected to what other neurons. You can't you know, use those techniques in living people or other living animals, but you can do post-mortem analysis that is really unambiguous. So that's pretty well traced. But then what it all signifies like what psychologically corresponds to this activity or that activity. That's a lot harder to figure out, partly because we don't know how to interpret human-level psychological studies of live people just interacting with their world, and partly because we're not so clear on the philosophy. What would make a brain structure the desire structure as opposed to the pleasure structure? Are those really different things? Maybe they're the same thing. Questions like that are ones that psychologists don't have a special inside track to sorting out, philosophers are traditionally the ones who work on that level of generality or abstraction. Hmm. Well, what are some of the advancements in neuroscience that we are waiting for or, of course, working on so that we can tease apart these differences uh, more finely? There's still ongoing work on localizing pleasure. Where do pleasure and displeasure happen? Partly that's a confusing philosophical question because people have different ideas about whether Pleasure is, for instance, a single kind of feeling that just comes on a continuum of, you know, more and more pleasure versus more and more displeasure with a neutral point in between. I think that would be my perspective. But some people would say, no, pleasure is sort of a whole collection of different feelings. It's the feeling of your body relaxing and your heart rate slowing down, your breathing getting gentle and deep, and of your gut relaxing, things like that. That collection of feelings, that feeling is pleasure. So pleasure isn't its own feeling. It's this combination of feelings of changes in your body. And for displeasure, it would just be the other way. It would be the feeling of you tightening up, getting tense, that anxious feeling. So which one of those pleasure is? That's a big issue right from the start. And then where would it be localized? That's another question. Localization, there we really need the science. We can't just sit back as philosophers and say, well, it must be this part of the brain. But if we knew where pleasure was found, we would have 
really solid answers to important questions like, is pleasure something that is a byproduct of an idea that leads you to take an action? Or is it the idea itself that motivates all action? This is a famous ancient question. Do we do everything we do for pleasure? Or do we do things for some other goal, but we get pleasure as a side effect because we've gotten the thing that we wanted? Mm-hmm. And that's a really deep question. That's something that neuroscience could really help us answer. Right now, there are some really interesting positions, some really interesting evidence suggesting certain brain regions are crucially involved in pleasure. What all of these suggestions have in common at the moment is that all of them are downstream of dopamine. That is, all of these structures that might be structures where you have pleasure if that structure is active, the structures are activated by release of dopamine. At least there's one cause, not necessarily the only cause. But there are some really nice studies that show that. So, for instance, things like um, you give human subjects ecstasy as part of an experiment. We know that ecstasy increases the release of dopamine, and we know it increases the release of serotonin. If you block the increase of dopamine, people don't get any pleasure out of ecstasy, but they do get a little bit of the very mild hallucinogenic effect. There's sort of an intensification of visual objects or an apparent shimmer or shake in visual objects that's induced in a lot of people who use ecstasy. So they still get that. You block the serotonin effects, but allow the dopamine effects to go forward. You block that very mild kind of hallucinatory effect, but people get all the pleasure that they expect from using ecstasy. And where do I sign up for that study? (laughs) There are all kinds of fascinating studies that are done. Most of them are done on subjects who are normally not drug naive. So there's some justification for saying, these people aren't going to be any worse off if they participate in our study than they would be otherwise. Uh, you might need to demonstrate that you already have some previous experience. Yeah, that disqualifies me, unfortunately. <laughs> there was a fantastic Swiss study done on amphetamines where they needed subjects to stay still for a really long time in order to use the neuroimaging technique that they wanted. But if you're on amphetamines, you're not inclined to stay still. It makes you very mm-hmm. jittery, very mobile. And so the study mentioned in passing that Subjects were exposed to the effect of the amphetamines in an informal context the day before the official experiment. I think what that means is they had a party where everyone got really high. But, I I mean, I don't know. It's not in the experimental (laughs) write-up. Still, really interesting to know exactly how these things work out. On the other side, pain research can sometimes be really frightening. Uh, I know that uh, a scientist at uh, UCSF conducted a pain experiment in which there was a, a hot probe and you would push your lip against the hot probe until it was too painful to bear and then pull away. But one of the things about heat pain is that even when you pull away, it still hurts, mm-hmm. right? And, and in fact, it often even hurts a little bit more initially because the worst of the pain is yet to come. And so people were asked to hold their lips long there until they couldn't endure the pain anymore. And then they had a few seconds of technically in by their own definitions, unendurable pain before the pain started to go away. Yeah. So these are some brave volunteers, and uh, you get both sides of the coin with experiments like these. Well, in your Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy article, you delineate six different families of theories about what desire is and how it works. Could you run us Mm -hmm. through those and explain how different philosophers argue for them? Sure. I'll just give you a really quick rundown as, as quickly as I can. So first, there's a motivational theory of desire. So to desire something is just to have something inside you that pushes you towards acting to get the thing. So if I desire an Oreo cakester, I just have something inside me that's pushing me towards getting an Oreo cakester. And that's all that desire is. Now, desire might have other side effects, like making me feel good if I get the cakester or whatever, but that's what it is to be a desire. You normally argue for that by just saying, look, when do we attribute desires to people? If I see that somebody is like trying to get an Oreo cakester, I'll say she wants an Oreo cakester. I just attribute the desire because I see the action. And it's just as simple as that. But then you might think, well, I'd rather focus on what it feels like to have a desire. And one of the ways it feels like to have a desire is that I really look forward to getting the Oreo cakester. I feel really disappointed if I see that my girlfriend's eaten the last one. I'm all, oh, no, and I feel bad. You might say, well, that's what it is to desire the cookie. It's to be the kind of person who's vulnerable to feeling bad if you don't get the thing 
and feeling good. If you do get the thing, feeling excited about the possibility of getting it, feeling morose about the impossibility of getting it if it seems impossible to you. Those feelings, you might say, make up desire. That would be the pressure-based theory of desire or the hedonic theory of desire. The thing that motivates people there is the idea that it's the way desires affect our feelings that's really the essence of desire. Nobody's going to deny that desires cause actions, but that would be something like a side effect, a useful effect that desires have on us because of their nature. But their nature is right. these feelings, not the actions. Somebody else is going to come along and say, no, you're, you were right to focus on action, but you were missing a key part of the nature of action. A key part of the nature of action is we always act for the good. We always act for at least our understanding of the good, maybe not what's objectively good. But we always try to achieve something that seemed like a good idea at the time. And what a desire is, is an appearance of goodness in a certain thing. So I might say, well, an Oreo cakester, that looks good right now. What I'm saying there is I have this idea of it as good to go and get an Oreo cakester. And that's what causes me to go and get it, the idea that it would be good. And that idea of goodness, that's my desire. Now, that's not to say that if I believe something is good, I'm automatically going to be motivated to get it because we all know that that's not true. I believe a lot of things are good, but I can't get off my butt and go do them. <laughs> Still, when something appears good, and it's kind of like the distinction between believing something is true and seeing that it's true at the moment, where you can have sort of an optical illusion and it looks like it's true, but you know it's not, or where you can have trouble getting your head around something. You say like, theoretically, I know it's true, but I just don't see how it could be. Mm -hmm. Philosophers have tried to focus on that distinction and say, desiring something is like seeing it rather than believing it. It's an appearance of goodness, not necessarily one that you believe in. And hmm. when you have that appearance, you are motivated, but you're motivated because the appearance is an appearance specifically of goodness. So it's an attempt to tie all action to the idea of what's good. There's a slightly different version of that theory that says it's not the idea of goodness as such that's important. It's just that desires focus your attention on the reasons you have to take actions. So when I want an Oreo cakester, what happens? Well, I have my attention drawn to the deliciousness of the cakester. I have my attention focused on the convenience of going to the kitchen and getting one. I think, oh, sure, I'd like ice cream, but I mean, it's much more inconvenient and it's not any more delicious. So I find myself paying attention to the reasons I have to specifically get that thing, and that's what makes it true that I want that thing. Not necessarily that I'm conceiving it of as good, but I'm seeing the reasons that I have to do that course of action rather than some other. Then there's the theory that I prefer, which says all of these different effects of desire are really interesting. Action, pleasure, thinking something's good, paying attention to something. But those are all effects. Desire is just the cause of those effects. And this theoretical approach says, so look into the brain and see what is the cause of these effects. When you do that, it seems like the brain's dopamine system is the cause of those effects. And the brain's dopamine system isn't the same as any of those effects. The brain's dopamine system is really a certain kind of learning system, the kind of unconscious learning system. It's responsible for operant conditioning, most famously, but that's not the only kind of learning it's responsible for. It drives a lot of unconscious learning. So you might say, to desire something is for the idea of that thing to drive unconscious learning. And why would you say that? You say that because that's the kind of thing that in us has all of these effects. That's the kind of thing that in us also causes action, causes feelings of pleasure and displeasure, causes us to think about what's good, causes us to pay attention to things. You say, that's what desire is. Well, and is the idea there that you are unconsciously learning things that will help you survive, and that's why the dopamine system evolved, is to help you learn, oh, you, you, know, you don't want to cut yourself, but you do want to uh, have sex, stuff like that? That's right. That would be the initial reason for it. But, of course, we're complicated animals, and we learn things that aren't essential for our survival, but are just side effects of being able to survive. So maybe it's part of our survival that we come to care about family members. We want them to be okay. Mm -hmm. And that's something that 
release of dopamine inside us, the idea of our own family members being happy, being okay. But the same thing that allows you to bond in that way with your family allows you to bond in that way with friends, with strangers, people who used to hate you, people who maybe have done bad things to your family, but then they try to make it up to you. You're able to bond with them. That kind of stuff, it's not obvious that that has an evolutionary pro or con to it. It's not obvious how often that became an issue. But now living in societies where most of the people we meet every day are strangers, that capacity to form those friendships with you know people of all different genetic backgrounds, people of all different social backgrounds, people of all different relationships to us, our family, our clan, that capacity is there because we have that capacity probably in order to have those relationships to family and to clan. Hmm. Uh, and that's just one example of the way in which, although there's an evolutionary route for it, it can take all kinds of different shapes in contemporary society. And so this learning-based theory of desire would say that desire is identical to this learning system in the brain, this unconscious learning system or the dopamine release system, right. or whatever it turns out to be. And then that system that is desire has all these effects that we normally associate with desire, like pleasure and looking forward to something and paying attention to certain things. Is that right? That's right. That's the idea. But now, if you don't like any of these theories because you think, you know, I think all of these things are important aspects of desire, but I don't think desire can be reduced to any one aspect. You might say, why don't we just put all of the aspects together and say, desire is anything that has most of those aspects. And that's a holistic approach to desire. Holistic just in the sense of it gathers in all of these things to make a whole. And say, desire is just anything that has all or almost all of these features. So if you have an organism and it is motivated to go and get something and it feels good about getting it, feels bad when it doesn't get it, pays attention to the reasons that it has to get it, thinks that it's good, gets rewarded in the sense of is unconsciously trainable via getting it, then definitely he desires that thing. If it has most of those effects, but it's missing one or two, oh yeah, it probably desires it still. If it's missing almost all of those effects, but it has just one or two, no, it doesn't desire it. Because to desire something according to this last holistic theory is just to have all of this syndrome associated with desire. Well, you've done a very good job as, as your philosopher's duty to complicate something that we thought was simple. <laughs> and I'm wondering if you could continue that for us, because there seem to be different types of desires as well. Yeah. You know, when you start talking about desire, most people's first thought is, oh, you're talking about sex. You're talking about sexual desire. But as you suggested, even in your intro, and as I've been trying to suggest with Oreo Cakesters, you know, we desire all kinds of things. We desire food, sex, water, things that are essential to our survival. But we also desire things like world peace or to read complex literature or yeah. to have certain kinds of taste experiences, not even necessarily the most pleasant ones. I mean, one of the things that I enjoy doing is trying very bitter beers. And it's not always the most pleasant experience, but there's something very appealing to me about it because it's extra interesting. There's a certain complexity. That itself is something that you might desire, a complex taste, not even necessarily a pleasant one. Hmm. So there's room for complexity just in how intellectual or how body-oriented a desire is. But even when we're talking body-oriented, we're not necessarily talking about simple things, things that are related in any sense that we ordinarily understand to natural selection or to physical benefit. And then, of course, when we're talking about things that are more abstract, those things are pretty far removed. I mean, a mathematician really wants to know, fundamentally wants to know the nature of certain mathematical truths. Mm -hmm. And that has nothing to do with natural selection, has nothing to do with getting that mathematician's genes into the next generation. <laughs> but nonetheless, that's something that the mathematician is really going to want. Well, getting back to the theories of desire, you said that you're partial towards the learning-based theory of desire. Do you think that the evidence right now supports that theory better than the others? I think that there's certain kind of evidence in favor of it now that didn't exist before. It's based on science. But there's still a key philosophical question, which there can't be any 
scientific evidence for or against. You just have to philosophize it out, as you might say. The key question is this. Is desire the same thing as its famous effects? Or one of its famous effects? Or is desire the cause of those effects? And I've put it in a way that's a little favorable to my preferred interpretation, which is desire is the cause of its famous effects. But, you know, it's not crazy to say that something is the same thing as its most famous effect. I mean, what is it for something to be disgusting? Normally, you'd say nothing is sort of objectively disgusting. A thing is disgusting if it just causes a feeling of disgust inside you, right? So it's the effect of the thing that determines that it really is disgusting. So maybe wheat sins covered with peanut butter are disgusting to one person because they evoke disgust in that person, but not disgusting to another person because to the other person, oh, that sounds tasty. So you might say, look, desire is like that. Desire is defined by its most famous effect, like action or Mm -hmm. feeling. But you might say, no, desire has a real nature to it that isn't defined by its effects. It just happens to have those effects on us. You might say that is true about, like, lightning. I mean, lightning looks bright to us. But if we had different kinds of eyes, maybe we couldn't see lightning. Maybe it would be invisible to us. Would that mean lightning wouldn't exist? No, it would still exist. It's just that we wouldn't know it by that effect. And what about thunder? I mean, we hear thunder, but if we had different kinds of ears, we wouldn't be able to hear that low pitch. So we wouldn't hear lightning either. If we had different eyes and ears, we wouldn't hear it and we wouldn't see it. Would that make it not exist? No, it still exists. It's just it wouldn't have any of the familiar effects. I think desire is like that. Desire is something that could have none of its familiar effects, but it would still be there. And it would be there because... It's the thing that, under normal conditions that we actually live in, does cause those effects most of the time. But that's not a question you can answer with science. That's a question that you really have to sit down and say, man, is desire more like disgust, defined by its effects, or is it more like lightning? It's the kind of thing that is real whether or not it has those effects on any particular creature. Yeah, that's the question about how do we use words and what do we want our words to mean, and those seem to be pretty tricky. How do you go about answering those questions? I mean, you've given some hints already. One of the things that I think we can do is we can say, what did we expect desires to explain? And do we expect desires to be the kinds of things that are interesting to scientists? Like, no scientist is really going to care about what is disgusting. Scientists might be interested in disgust. In fact, they are. There's whole research literature on, you know, disgust responses in non-human animals and humans. But no scientist investigates disgusting things, right? I mean, that would be a pointless category to investigate because it's just defined by people's reactions. You investigate the reaction, not the things. Because, you know, it's not obvious that there's any coherent category of disgusting things. Well, if desire is defined by its effects, you'd think, Well, the scientist isn't going to study desire. The scientist will study the thing that causes the effect and the effect. You don't study the thing defined by the effect. You study the thing that is the independent cause of the effect. And you have to give it a new name because obviously it won't be a desire. It'll be something else. So if you think psychological science is the kind of thing that investigates human action, and you think, well, part of what it should do is it should say, well, desires cause actions, then you're assuming that desires are really independent of actions, because when scientists investigate things, they investigate the independent things that just happen to bump into each other in the right way to cause various effects. But some people would just say, no, I don't expect science to be able to investigate the human mind. We define the human mind ourselves in our own ways that are totally independent of science. If you have that attitude, I don't think I can convince you that desires are the thing I think they are. But on the other hand, if you have that attitude, I think you're kind of stuck in the Middle Ages intellectually. I think most of us have embraced the idea that science can investigate the things we care about. It can't tell us what to care about, but it can tell us the facts about the things we do care about, at least a bunch of the facts. And if desires are one of the things we care about, science should be able to tell us some of the things about them what their causes are, what their effects are. And that's my basic stance. And if you take that stance, I think the natural result is to say desires are not their effects. They're 
things that just happen to cause those effects normally in human beings. Well, Tim, all of this work on understanding desire is highly relevant to several moral theories that are written about in the literature called desire-based theories of morality. I wonder if you could explain what some of those are and how it is that they are based on desires, and then after that we could discuss what the implications are of the latest research in desire for those moral theories. The way I think of it, there are two main families of theories that have some relationship between morality and desire. One is that what morality tells you to do has something to do with desire. Like, for instance, morality might tell you, try to make sure that people get what they want. But there's another approach, which is to say, where morality comes from has to have something to do with your motivation to be moral. The nature of morality has to be the kind of thing where it moves you to act. And in that second class of theories, the nature of action itself and the nature of desire itself become really important to understanding the nature of morality or what possible theories of morality can survive and what possible theories can't. And are you talking about motivational internalism there? That's exactly what I'm talking about. So motivational internalism would normally be said to be the view that the very idea of what's right and what's wrong is motivating whether or not you had some desire beforehand to do what's right or to do what's wrong. Once you see that something's right, you have to do it. Now, as we saw, if you have an idea of desire that just says, well, desire is the appearance of something being good, you can see, oh, there's going to be a direct connection between thinking that something's good, seeing that it's good, and being motivated to do it. But on other theories of desire, it's not going to be so obvious that you're ever going to be motivated to do what you think is good. Right. Well, and I think it gets tricky here because usually motivational internalism is thought of like this, is that if motivational internalism has to be true for us to accept a particular moral theory, then the dictates of that moral theory have to be motivating to us. Mm-hmm. But there are certain things that we would see as good in the sense of the desire theory, uh, good-based desire theory, but those quote-unquote good things wouldn't necessarily be good in the moral sense. They would just be good for us and, in fact, could be quite evil in the moral sense. And so then there would still be a disconnect between what we see as good in the moral sense or what is good in the moral sense and the motivation to do it. For example, if if I subjectively saw that, you know, I, I was a pedophile and I really wanted to rape this poor kid and I saw that in my mind as good um, and I was motivated to do it, but that's a disconnect probably from what mm-hmm. morally is good. And so it's still not the case that what's morally good is motivating me. But we could ask this question, where is the problem with your motivation? Is the problem in your desire or is it just in your belief? And we could say the problem is really in the belief. So what's wrong with the pedophile in the example that you gave isn't that the pedophile is motivated directly toward evil. Pedophile is motivated directly towards good, but the pedophile has the wrong belief about what's good. The pedophile believes that, you know, for me, having sex with a child is good, but what the pedophile doesn't understand is that it's not really good. It's actually bad, even for the pedophile. Because, and now we just impose our moral theory, whatever our moral theory is, because on balance, the harm to the child is much greater than the benefit to the pedophile, or because children have rights which the pedophile is violating by attempting to have sex with the child, or whatever, something like that. And if the pedophile really believed the truth about morality, the pedophile would take back the claim that it's good to have sex with a child. Now, do you think these theories of desire, if we find out a final theory of desire, will that be able to tell us whether or not motivational internalism is true? I think so. In fact, I think the evidence is already very strong that motivational internalism is false. So the theory that I prefer, for instance, one of the consequences is this. Motivational internalism can only be true 
if our ideas about what's good can directly change what counts as a reward or a punishment for us in this unconscious learning sense of reward and punishment, the sense in which it would change what would work to train us unconsciously to do things or to not do things. Mm -hmm. And I think we have very good evidence that that's just not true. There is a model for how it is possible that ideas can cause actions independently of the reward system, how they can override the reward system. But unfortunately, that model is the model of Tourette syndrome. It's the model of the person who has this drive building up inside him to utter some obscenity, to make some action, to do these things that are kind of the things we famously associate with Tourette's people, ticks, as they're called. So the person has this drive to do the tick, and that drive overwhelms the person's reward system, overwhelms the signal saying, no, no, don't do this, that's coming from the reward system, and makes the person do the action. So we have an idea of how it's possible that an idea of an action can cause the action overriding desire, but it's the very opposite of moral motivation. I don't think any moral theorist is going to want to say that our idea of the right overrides our reward system, just like a teoretic tick does. That would be to make our moral actions involuntary. That seems wrong to everybody. So everybody should say that moral action really comes from the reward system itself. But the reward system has two parts. It has your idea of what's happening, and it has whether or not that idea promotes a reward signal or not. And whether or not an idea promotes a reward signal isn't based on the rationality of the idea. It's based on whether or not we are naturally selected for having that connection when we're born, or whether we develop that connection through learning, through education, through the way that we're raised, over time, through our experiences, as a kind of unconscious associative learning. And neither of those things are the kinds of things that the moral internalist needs to be true if any kind of moral internalism about motivation is going to hold. Well, and this will be good news for those who hold a theory of morality that cannot account for motivational internalism, because that's one of the criticisms of a lot of theories of morality is somebody who's an, um, an opponent of that theory will be able to show that it can't account for motivational internalism. But if motivational internalism is false, because neuroscience has shown us that, then that's one objection that falls by the wayside. Absolutely. I think that's right. I think, in a way, it's sad. It would be nice to believe that if we could all just be rational enough in the ordinary sense of being rational, mm -hmm. we would all be reasonable right. in the sense of being morally reasonable people. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't seem to be true. It seems that some of the desires that are related to morality are born in us. So even little children are unhappy that other people are crying or that other people are making sad expressions. So maybe that there are certain things that are related to morality that are inborn desires in us. But as we all know, that's very, very limited. That only takes you so far down the moral road. And to get all the way to caring more about other people's rights, other people's welfare, than you care about advancing your own personal interests, to get to that point, to the point of, you know, whatever is morally ideal, that's something that doesn't come built into us by nature, that isn't automatically learned by us through experience. If it's ever learned enough, it has to come through parents and educators who model these things as ideals for us and who set up our lives in such a way that we find that for the most part, things work out better for us if we care about what's moral. That teaches us to care about what's moral initially just as a means to an end, but ultimately as the thing we care about for itself. I think that's how it happens. I think it's still early days to be sure that that's the right story, but I think the evidence points that way at the moment. Hmm. Well, Tim, let's say you're right about desire, and it's basically this learning system in the brain. Is that theory of desire more friendly to certain theories of morality that existed before we knew this neuroscience? I don't think so. So take two famous opposing views, one that says that 
the key moral test to something like, what if everybody did that? Which is a very crude version of the Kantian moral theory. And compare it to uh, a theory that asks, would everybody be better off if you did that? A very crude version of the utilitarian theory. You could come to care about whether everybody did that, what would the consequences be? Would it be possible for everybody to do that? You could care about a kind of practical consistency as a result of being taught to care about it indirectly, as a result of people emphasizing for you how important that rule is or ought to be in your own thinking and encouraging you to think that way and giving you consequences if you don't. But equally, you could be taught to care about the other rule. You could be taught to care what happens overall. Are people better off or worse off if I take this action? That could be the key thing that is emphasized for you in your education, the thing that's nurtured in you by your educators, your environment, your parents, your older siblings, your friends. They could all press you to keep in mind, hey, is this going to work for the greater good or not? And if you were trained in one way, you'd be more inclined towards what Kantians would think of as moral correct behavior. If you were trained in the other way, you'd be inclined to what utilitarians think of as morally correct behavior. But it wouldn't tell us one way or the other whether the Kantians or the utilitarians were right. Hmm. Are there any theories of morality that you think could be falsified by finding out that a particular theory of desire is correct and the others are incorrect? I think that if you distinguish between two levels, at one level, no. At the other level, yes. So at the one level, we're talking about what you might call normative ethics, saying just what are the standards for right and wrong? Just mm -hmm. describe maybe the right actions or the wrong actions. I think a theory of desire cannot tell you anything about what's correct there. But other level, meta-ethics, what makes right and wrong exist? Do right and wrong exist just because society imposes certain rules? Does right and wrong exist because rationality itself imposes certain rules? There, I think a correct theory of desire can really make a difference. So I think, for instance, that a correct theory of desire really undermines the Kantian meta-ethical view. But even if you shoot down the Kantian meta-ethical view, which is their idea that rational consistency itself is a motive, is sort of a force that drives action in a certain way. If you undermine that by saying no action is really driven ultimately by desire, there's no sense in worrying about the kind of practical consistency that the Kantians imagine. Even when you undermine their meta-ethical theory, you might still say, but you know, what's wrong really is to act in a way that you wouldn't want everyone to act. And sometimes that means not worrying about the greater good, but just not lying because you don't want everyone to lie. There's no direct damage done to the normative theory, even if there's serious damage done to the meta-theory. And are there any other meta-ethical views that you think the current findings on desire tend to weaken? Michael Smith has a position. The basic idea of Michael Smith's theory, the key idea, is that sometimes you have a belief about what it would be reasonable for you to want. You say, look, I want this, and it's totally reasonable for me to want it. Other times you say, I don't want this, but really, if I were a reasonable person, I'd want it. Like, you might say, you know, I'm just not motivated to lose weight, but if I were a reasonable person, I would be motivated to lose weight. I would want to lose weight more. Or you say, you know, if I were a reasonable person, I'd care more about others, but I just don't. Mm -hmm. So Smith's idea is, crucially, if you believe that it would be reasonable for you to want something, then if you are actually a rational person, not all of us are, as those examples were just supposed to show, but if you were a rational person, you would want it. And this is a key part of his metaphysical theory. Skip the rest of the details. Just the idea that you can create a desire to do something out of nothing, but the belief that if you were rational, you would want it, that doesn't seem consistent with the scientific evidence that we have. Because what that requires is that you think a single thought and that changes the connections between your belief systems and your dopamine system. And although single thoughts can do all kinds of interesting things, 
they don't seem like the kinds of things that can reweight neural connections at that speed. There's just no evidence for it. There's some general evidence against it. What seems much more likely is that if you already wanted to be rational and you thought, well, being rational involves worrying about this issue, then that would make you worry more about that issue. But that would be based on your previous desire to be rational. And that's exactly the result Smith wants to avoid. Smith wants to say, no, you can have a new foundational motivation generated by believing something is rational. You don't need to rely on a pre-existing motivation. Hmm. And I think that part of his theory exactly falls apart once you consider the science of desire. Now, Tim, after your studies of neuroscience and the philosophy and desire, do you have a particular moral theory that is most plausible to you? I have a theory, but I couldn't say that my theory is supported by my evidence so much as my theory is not inconsistent with the evidence that I have about desire. Right. I have a very conventional, not very worked out, normative theory. I think being moral involves helping people get what they want, as long as what they want is fairly innocent, so as long as it doesn't involve hurting other people, for instance. And I think that there's something very important about fairness, whether or not that helps get people what they want. Sometimes you just have to be fair rather than give people exactly what they'd most like to have. So, you know, if somebody who already has a bunch of money wins the lottery and somebody really poor doesn't win it, well, you know, you're not distributing money in a way that gets people most of what they want, but it's maybe fairest. So sometimes you have to take that into consideration. And then maybe there are certain kinds of rights that people have that you can't violate, even if it would make people better off. But maybe they're not considerations exactly of fairness as such. I don't know exactly how to think about people's right not to be tortured, but it seems to me that they have a right not to be tortured. And it doesn't seem that it really comes down to whether it makes everybody better off. It doesn't really come down to whether or not it's fair. So I don't have a very clear picture, but I think I have a fairly conventional, boring set of thoughts about what's right and wrong just at the practical level. But at the meta-ethical level, I have a very controversial theory, which most philosophers don't have. I just think that morality is a socially invented rule. But most philosophers would say, well, if you thought morality was a socially invented rule, why would you ever care about morality? Why would you ever, you know, respect or love morality if it was just something that people made up? But to me, that has a very confused relationship to what we love and care about. I mean, I care about my dad. Is my dad a better human being than every other dad? I don't think so. I mean, he's a better human being than Solomon. He's a worse human being than others. But he's my dad. I care about him. And I don't need to explain or apologize for that. Or why do I care about the Montreal Canadiens hockey team? They haven't been, you know, a winning hockey team for ages. <laughs> and I've never lived in Montreal. You know, I'm a Canadian. They're called the Canadians. Is that a justification? No. But I just like them. And I don't feel any need to apologize for it or to explain it or to make it rational. In the same way, I think, well, look, there are human practices that encourage us to care about fairness to care about other people's welfare and to treat people like they have some basic rights. And I care about those things as a result of being taught to care about them. But now that I care about them, I don't feel any need to apologize or to show that those are rational things. I love those things. I love fairness. And I don't see any need to go beyond that in explaining why I try to make things more fair around me or elsewhere in the world. And ditto for helping people out. Ditto for respecting people's rights. So it seems to me like that's a sufficient basis for the relationship to morality that we think that we actually have. And it's a realistic relationship to morality in that I don't think that I can make other people be more moral just by explaining to them the difference between right and wrong. Unless they already care about people's welfare or justice or rights. And if they don't care about those things, I don't think there's any amount of talking to them that will ever convince them to care about those things. I could think about 
how I could strategically start trying to sneakily make them care about those things a little bit, to expose them to certain people, certain situations that would tug on their feelings in a certain way that would start to turn them around. But if I don't have the opportunity to do that, I just have to accept I can't get those people on board to do what is morally decent. I have to work around them or override them if we're talking about societies like Nazi Germany. So that's how I see things. I don't think that my position is particularly supported by the science, but I think that it's consistent with it. It's maybe the most modest meta-ethical theory that you can really have. It's the one that claims the least for morality. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I feel like it claims enough to support the relationship we actually have to right and wrong. And I feel like that should be enough. Tim, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for coming on the show. It was a lot of fun, Luke. Thanks for having me. In the next episode, I'll be interviewing Yako Gereke about fundamentalism on stilts. So stay tuned for more Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot. <laughs>